Today's scripture reading is taken from all over the book of Proverbs. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. You may be seated. Let me, uh, let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for this word that points to you. We thank you for this word uh, in which you are the fulfillment of it. Uh, all of your promises, all of God's promises are, are said yes and amen in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask uh, today, this afternoon, as we look at work, that we would see uh, the story of work that we find ourselves in. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you're speaking to us uh, today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as the readings alluded to, we're talking today about work. Work, work, work. We're going back there tomorrow, so I thought we'd talk about it today. Uh, we're talking about work today. And I want to begin this afternoon by acknowledging uh, that this topic of work, like all of our topics in Proverbs, will not be an exhaustive treatment of work. Uh, everything that needs to be said about work, that could be said about work, uh, will not be said uh, this afternoon. There is so much we could say about uh, work that will not be said. We're talking this afternoon, rather, about what Proverbs has to say about work. But if you are interested in knowing the biblical vision of, of work, what that looks like from Genesis to Revelation, how the Bible speaks of work in its entirety, I want to commend to you a book by a guy named Daniel Doriani called Work, uh, Its Purpose, uh, Its Dignity, and Its Transformation. So Daniel Doriani, Work, uh, Its Purpose, Its Dignity, and Its Transformation. Uh, fantastic book. Uh, I'll quote Doriani uh, two or three times uh, this afternoon. So yeah, just a little uh, helpful resource for you. The question, though, today is, what does Proverbs have to say about work? And if you've been reading Proverbs throughout the summer, you know that the answer to that question uh, is quite a lot. It has quite a lot to say uh, about work. Before we dive into that, though, I want to speak to a tension that likely exists uh, in this room right now between two groups of people. Uh, the first view, or the first group in this room, uh, views work uh, using the language of, I just. I just. Uh, I just uh, grade papers. I just uh, manage people. Oh, what do you do? I, I just uh, watch my kids. I just type on a computer. Uh, for the I just person here today, uh, you're struggling to, to see how your work and your following Jesus actually fit together. You're struggling to see that. And in fact, you probably think they're entirely unrelated. Or maybe you think the only point of intersection does occur when it does, when you can share the gospel with somebody at work. That that's the only point that those two paths ever cross. Other than that, uh, they're unrelated. Uh, we could say, generally speaking, the I just people here this afternoon have a devalued view of work, a devalued view or opinion of their work. Uh, but it's also possible, remember, there's a tension here, uh, to speak of those here in this room who have an overvalued view of their work, an overvalued uh, view. Now, occasionally, uh, in Christian circles, 
uh, we throw around rhetoric and slogans like, uh, all work is God's work, right? Uh, and all work, therefore, is equal. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the Christian reformer, theologian, uh, is famous for saying that as the milkmaid milks the, the cow, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. And if that's true, a few questions come to mind. If all work is equally valuable, uh, then should we aspire to positions of influence uh, and positions of power in society? Or should we just be content with where we are? If all work is equally valuable, is it then right to say that this includes jobs that seem to be inherently sinful? Uh, Is this true of the thief, uh, the sex trafficker, uh, the Vegas bookie? Uh, this afternoon, it's to this tension between a devalued view of work, right? I just, and an overvalued view of work. It's all good uh, that Proverbs helps us wisely uh, navigate. And to do this, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to see the beginnings of work. Uh, the beginnings of work. W- where does work come from? How should we understand it uh, in its origins? The second thing is this. We're going to look at work at its best before finally turning and seeing, thirdly, uh, work at its worst. So the beginning of work, work at its best, and work uh, at its worst. Are you with me? This is a sleepy Sunday. Here we go. First, uh, the beginnings uh, of work. Uh, it is unbelievably meaningful for us by, to begin by acknowledging that we have a God and we worship a God who works. He works. Uh, in Proverbs, we see God by wisdom and through wisdom, the personification of wisdom, creating all that we see. Proverbs eight twenty two to 31. If you have your Bible, it's a long passage, but it's worth it. Read this with me. Proverbs eight twenty two to 31 says this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Uh, this is uh, wisdom personified here. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, see this, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his, in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Our God is a working God who not only worked once in creation, but continues to work throughout history. Uh, Doriani, that book I recommended uh, earlier, he, he writes in his book, uh, for example, God is a king, which is a job, not just a title. He is a good shepherd and a warrior who defends Israel. He is a gardener watering his plants, a, a farmer planting a vineyard, and a potter working his, his clay. Now, I said this is incredibly meaningful because in this, we learn one of the ways in which the God of the Bible distinguishes himself from every other God in history. See, if you and I were to trace a brief history of religions, we would find this. Either the gods don't work, or they work and then they leave. Either they don't work, or they work and then they leave. You know that ancient story of like Pandora's box? 
who's heard of Pandora's box even in passing, right? One of the things that comes out of Pandora's box, this ancient myth, is work. One of those bad things like death and and destruction and chaos. Also work comes out. That's how the ancient world viewed work. And here, uniquely, the God of the Bible is saying, no, no, work is good. In fact, I participate in work. Trace this with me in our Bibles. Our God, he works in creation. As he worked throughout the history of his people, he worked most gloriously for all of us in sending his son Jesus, who completes the planned work of redemption, as he cries out from the cross. What does he cry out? It is finished. There's a work being accomplished in the cross. He he is working in us, to use Paul's language, to change our motives, empower our actions, accomplish his purposes by his Holy Spirit. And that work we experience now by the Spirit is a work, we're told, that the Spirit will bring to completion, that he's working in us at the day of Jesus' return. Uh, It's a work where Jesus will complete uh, this ushering in the new heavens and, and the new earth. See, followers of Jesus have to begin. Today, we have to begin by situating ourselves in the biblical story of work. It's a story where God has worked, is working, and and, and will be working. Uh, To borrow a phrase from Tim Keller, we need to learn to re-narrate our work, to put ourselves in a different story about work. See, what are some of the implications of finding ourselves in this story? Firstly, most obviously, and perhaps this might sound strange to us, we discover that work is good. That work is, is good. We said it before, we'll say it again. Work itself is not the product of sin and death and destruction entering the world. And we like to think like that. Look back at Proverbs 8, 30 to 31 with me. And hear, hear, listen to how God experienced his work. Verses 30 and 31. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. God is delighting in his work, enjoying uh, his work. Now, I'm not naive, and I'm not idealistic. We all know, we don't have to, I don't have to sell you on this, that work at times in this life is frustrating and, and seemingly pointless. And hard. And we work with morons. Right? Not me. I don't work with morons. But you do probably. It's hard. But this act of work itself, this sustained exercise, is in itself good. And I think if we think about it, we all at some point have experienced this goodness of completing work and and getting work done. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he speaks of his work in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles like this. In Christ Jesus, then, listen, I have reason to be proud of my work uh, for God. Now, if you've been to my house, I've told you this, but the other day I had the opportunity with some friends to build a fence in our backyard. And I'm very, very proud of that fence. And no one who comes by my house, Mel's shaking her head, she's like, yes, you are. Uh, no one comes by who haven't told about that fence. There's a complete joy in starting with no fence at the beginning of the day and ending with a fence at the end of the day. There's joy in that. There's goodness in that. There's a created order in that. Uh, Sundays, for me, historically, have been some of my most joyous times. Not always, 
But sometimes, my most joyous times, as I complete the work of teaching and preaching, I can leave, yes, exhausted, but, but satisfied in the work that I get to do. And, and maybe you know about that. I, I say all of this because it is easy in our day and age to adopt an attitude towards work that desires to either A, minimize the amount of work we do, like how can I get by with doing the least amount of work in this life, or B, find a way to stop working altogether, right? Who do we idolize in our culture? The person who retires early. Like they're our hero, right? Like they're living the dream. That's the good life right there. This is the mindset of the weekend warrior. Proverbs gives this person a, a different name, but we'll encounter them a bit later on. The first thing we need to see is that work itself is good. And some of us need to reframe, re-narrate our basic understanding of work. Work itself is, is good. The second thing we learn in the origins of work is that while it's good, work is not everything. It's not everything. If you're familiar with the story of creation we find in our Bibles, the story that Proverbs is referring to, you know that God works six days and rests on the seventh. From this, we are to learn, indeed the church has learned throughout history, that we are to work six days. Keeping in mind that work is more than what we do at our jobs. We're to work six days, and we are to rest one day. God corrects here both the workaholic and the sluggard. He says both, you must work, he says that, and you must stop working. You must work, and you must stop working, you must rest. Asking whether or not we keep a rhythm of work and rest is extremely helpful in gaining insights into our own heart. In my life, this has been extremely helpful in understanding what's actually going on in here. Solomon writes in Proverbs 23, verse 4, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. There is no word, as much as we want there to be one, there is no word in Proverbs for the workaholic. It's not there. Solomon knows that we are prone to work and rest, rather, not in the fear of the Lord, not out of our identity in Jesus, but for our desire for for more money, uh, recognition, the outward approval. Again, Proverbs never, never draws a line for us and says, at this point you've worked too much, or at this point you're a workaholic. Instead, the command remains the same for work as it did for money, as it did for friendship, as it did for speech. We need to begin with our work with the fear of the Lord. And from there, from the fear of the Lord, from this prior theological commitment, we then can discern whether we should persist or desist, whether we should keep on working or or, or rest. See, we have, don't we? As my spin instructor would say, this unhealthy obsession with balance. We love balance. Balance, 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 right? Where we think everything should be split uh, into equal sections on our pie chart that is our life. We love balance. And the reality, as anyone who has ever looked for balance uh, will tell you, is that it can't be done. Why? Because as the wisdom literature teaches us, as Ecclesiastes, as Proverbs uh, teaches us, uh, life is unpredictable. Things happen. Our plans, all all our scheming gets gets thrown off course. One day we're rowing in our boat. The next thing we know, a Leviathan is coming and biting off our foot. Right? You guys have experienced that before? Life is unpredictable. 
It, it, it can be wild at times. Our foolproof systems that are good one week are useless the next. What we should strive for then is not balance, but work done in the fear of the Lord. See, working this way acknowledges that some seasons require more of us than others. And we don't need to despair. It also keeps us in check as we examine our motives behind our work. Is this really what is required of me? Or do I have my priorities all out of whack? Am I beginning not with the fear of the Lord, but a fear of man? A fear of pleasing others? Something else. See, rightly situating ourselves in the story of work reminds us that work can be a good thing. Despite our struggles, despite the fight, it can be a good thing. But that ultimately, work is not a God thing. And maybe just stop for a second and see, how does work and your life coexist? Do you see work as good? Has work become an ultimate thing? But then we need to ask, what does this work, when we're doing it, actually look like? Uh, When it comes to work in Proverbs, we can either find ourselves among the wise workers, work at its best, or amongst the foolish sluggards, work at at its worst. So who's the wise worker in Proverbs? Let's start positive because it'll get negative pretty quick. First, the wise worker in Proverbs has committed their work to the Lord. Proverbs 16 verse 3 famously says, maybe you heard this verse, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, at times, I want to qualify this. Some have used this verse to mean really simply this. If you just pray about your business, whatever it is, You pray about your work that you're doing. The Lord's going to bless that. He's going to grow it. He's going to establish it. You can count on that. He says so right here. To that, I want to say pump the brakes a a, a little bit. When we read Proverbs 16, verse 3, in the context of Proverbs 16, 1 and 2, it becomes to us much more obvious as to the meaning that is happening here. Look at Proverbs 16, 1 to 3 with me, and let's discern this meaning uh, together. Let's read that. It'll be behind me on the screen. Solomon writes, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. And then it says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So let's take this verse by verse. Verse 1. Here we are with our grand plans, right? Our 5, 10, 15 year plan. But it is God who says yes or no to them. And we give up control of our plans. Verse 2, here we are with the things we want to do, but the Lord tests our hearts to discern what the underlying motives are. Like, what do you want this for? To make your name great? Just to get rich? Now, verse 3, here we are with our work, the things that we're doing. Work that has been tested for evil motive, for selfish motive, for foolish motive, work then that fits into the righteous plan of God. It is that kind of work that God is interested in establishing, right? And that shouldn't be new to you. God is interested in bringing his kingdom to come to bear on this world. And he's interested in using you to do that. That shouldn't be news to you. That's how we should understand Proverbs 16, verse 3. And the question we should be asking at this, at this point is, how can I ensure that I'm doing that type of work? If God is about sustaining and blessing and supporting and encouraging and flourishing that type of work, how can I get in on that? Now, have you ever considered what kind of work Christians should do? I know I mentioned this in the introduction, but there is some work 
uh, like smuggling cocaine, uh, that we all readily acknowledge that we should not do as Christians. Uh, if that's news to you, you should not smuggle cocaine. Just I, I had to be clear about that. Uh, we typically, in, in sort of saying like what work we shouldn't do, we, we draw the line at that which is illegal, right? Uh, but is the Canadian legal system intended to be our standard of righteous work? Uh, listen to Doriani again. He writes in his book, So much labor goes through tasks that are pointless, even destructive by most measures. This holds true in obvious cases like gambling, pornography, or cigarette production. But should we produce food that is high in calories and barely nutritious, even if demand for it stays strong? Should we devote talent and energy to creating violent video games that are calibrated to addict their players? Some work is perfectly legal, but utterly immoral. I am not asking that we outlaw potato chips, but I am asking whether disciples should devote their lives to marketing potato chips. In short, let me summarize this for us. Can you tell me, and can you tell the person beside you, not right now, maybe later, how in your work you love God and love your neighbors? How does your work love God and love your neighbors? And not just the neighbors that you can see, but neighbors in faraway countries. How about neighbors who have yet to be born? We are so used to thinking of our work in terms of monetary gain, right? We just flatten it. How much money can I make, right? Uh, we enter business, maybe not to create jobs or, or to meet a need uh, in the market with a certain product, but rather to, to, to make money, to make a name for ourselves. Uh, we become doctors, not because we really want to help people, but because it provides a, a comfortable lifestyle, a good reputation and standing uh, in the community. Dorothy Sayers, she's a British essayist uh, writing around World War II, and she noticed that these men coming back from World War II, yeah, while they had all sorts of scars and PTSD and all that kind of stuff, at the same time were all uniquely contented and joined together and had found real hope and purpose in the fact that they had a shared uh, a mission. And it wasn't because uh, the army wages were, were, were like lavish, right? It wasn't because the eating was good uh, in the army. Listen to what Dorothy Sayers has to say. The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead in terms of the work done. Uh, to do so would mean taking the attitude of mind we reserve for our unpaid work, our hobbies, our leisure interests, the things we make and do for pleasure, and, and making that the standard of all our judgments about things and people. We should ask of an enterprise, not, will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not, what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods, not, can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? Of employment, not, how much a week, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? In other words, to put it in the language of Proverbs, work becomes immensely satisfying and gratifying when we pursue it in righteousness. In, in righteousness. When our work becomes a place of self-giving and self-sacrifice in order to advantage the other, someone other than ourselves, not simply a place where I collect a, a, a paycheck. Now, to be clear here, there's a lot of qualifiers in the sermon because work is a complex thing. But to be clear... 
There is nothing wrong with collecting a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, one of the ways the wise worker works righteously is by working hard. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12 24 says something very similar. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. See, diligence is not only working hard, but this word diligence in its original language is a word that carries with it the idea of not only working hard, but working wisely and skillfully. Of not only exerting a lot of effort and, and like trying really hard, but, but, but trying smartly and, and thinking about our work. Look at Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Another qualifier. Proverbs is not saying that if you're not a CEO, your work doesn't really matter. Solomon is not saying that. It's not saying that if you haven't been featured in the top 30 under 30, uh, then you're wasting your time. Remember, we need to re-narrate our work. And as we remind ourselves of the story of work that we find ourselves in as Christians, we remember that we worship a God who put on flesh in Jesus to work his plan of salvation. Think about what a scandal this would have been uh, to the ancient pagans. Not only does God work, but God put on flesh and did the work of slaves. He washed feet. He he did lowly work, menial work, uh, uh, hard work. See, uniquely in history, Christianity has dignified this type of work that other cultures, other religions have looked down upon. And Christianity has looked at hard, laborious work, working in the mud, working with your hands. I don't know, clearly I'm not one of those guys, so I can't talk much more about it. But historically, Christianity has given that work much dignity and honor and respect. And so this verse is not a slam on people who work with their hands. Rather, this verse is saying something else. First, it's saying this. We are called to do all of our work skillfully. We're called to do all of our work skillfully. It is not hard to see how when we work wisely and skillfully, we love God and love others. As we do our job well, we serve God, but also make our job more affordable, more palatable, whatever you want to say, to the people who are buying it. Second, and we shouldn't miss this, working skillfully will, at times, remember Proverbs, or these are not promises here, Proverbs are saying these are generally true statements. At times, working skillfully will lead us to finding ourselves in positions of influence and authority in society. These positions of influence and authority to, to the end of affecting change, the glory of God in every sphere of society. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, if I can for a moment, I use my own life to illustrate. There would be nothing inherently wrong uh, for me to stock shelves at Superstore. There'd be nothing inherently wrong about that. In fact, I could see how if I efficiently and and in a timely manner stocked the shelves at Superstore, I'd be facilitating meeting a real need for people that is their need to eat. There's a way that I could stock shelves to the glory of God at, at Superstore. But as I reflect on that and reflect on the gifts and and abilities God has given me, I'm convinced that I can be more impactful, have a greater impact, not stocking shelves at Superstore, but here with you right now, teaching and preaching, leading God's people uh, through the proclaiming of his word. Did you see what's happening there? One's not wrong. We just need to avail ourselves of those opportunities in order to change society, in order to impact things for the greater good. See, here's the challenge for us today. 
Some of us have been gifted and called by God to not only be faithful, honest, and gracious lawyers, but to be lawyers uh, who reform the elements of our judicial system that are broken and corrupt, right? Think of the abolition of the slave trade, right? It wasn't just Christians being like, oh, I'm just going to be faithful in my work, just sort of, sort of, you know, Peter Long here. No, it was Christians saying, I want to reform the system. Something's broken here. We're going to band together and change this. Some of us have been gifted and called by God, not only to be compassionate, wise, and diligent doctors, but to be doctors who write and support policy that will protect the most vulnerable in our nation well after we're dead. Some of us have been gifted and called by God not only to be loving, disciplining, and nurturing stay-at-home parents, but to be parents who create a discipleship movement amongst others who are working from home that transforms a neighborhood. Some of us have been called to that. And if we have that opportunity, to borrow a phrase that Paul uses in Corinthians, we are to avail ourselves of that opportunity. We're we're to do it. For for too long, we've preached a small vision of what Christian faithfulness at work looks like, right? What what does it look like? Well, we'll share the gospel if you get the chance. You know, and then when when you finish work, at the end of the day, go do good deeds in the downtown east side. That's what Christian faithfulness looks like. That's what we've said. Now, will all of us find ourselves... Uh, in positions uh, of, uh, to impact dramatic and systemic change? Obviously not. This is not everyone's calling. But there are some of us here today who have been called to stand before kings. And it's in those moments we need to decide whose agenda we want to advance. See, look at right after Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. L- look what comes right after this verse of, about working skillfully and standing before kings. L- look what it says in Proverbs 23. Do you see this? When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Now, in these positions of influence, in these places of authority, will you envy his food? Will you envy his power? Will you envy his wealth? Are you enticed by his lifestyle? Some of us have been called to stand before kings, not to advance ourselves, but to advance the kingdom of God. And we need to watch for that. To the rest of us, to the rest of us. I said this when we looked at money in Proverbs. And it's the same thing with power at work. For many of us, our work will not lead to a place of tremendous power and influence because we would be overcome by it. And that is a gracious gift from God. There's a calling for both of us here. If you're standing before kings, be faithful. If you're not, be faithful. See, if work at its best is that which in diligence, excellence, and wisdom loves God and loves others, work at its worst is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Work at its worst removes all concern for loving God and loving neighbor. Work at its very worst does not care about diligence. It does not care about excellence. It does not care about wisdom. And work at its worst in Proverbs is personified in the person of the sluggard. The sluggard. Thirteen times. Thirteen times in the Old Testament we find this person, the sluggard. All thirteen of them in the book of Proverbs. All thirteen of them. It's, It's an important phrase we need to wrap our heads around. Let me show you three occurrences of this word sluggard. Look at Proverbs 26, 13 to 15 with me. There it says this. If I can find it, it says this. The sluggard says, there is a line in the road, 
There's a line in the streets. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hands, his hand in the dish. It wears them out to bring it back to his mouth. Let me translate. The sluggard looks for any excuse not to go outside. Any excuse not to go to the field for harvest. So much so, they make up a story where there's a lion out there. I could get eaten by a lion, right? Which is a real possibility in the ancient world, fine. But they make up a story to avoid work, right? I've never been there before. I don't know about you. The sluggard is fastened to their bed. Listen to this. Turning like a door on a hinge. Again, I can't relate to any of this. It would be comical if it wasn't so sad. The sluggard reaches to their plate, and the sluggard is too lazy even to bring their hand back into their mouth to to eat their food. Do you see this picture? It's embarrassing. Uh, Bruce Waltke says that laziness in Proverbs is more than a character flaw. It's a moral issue leading to the loss of freedom, the perpetual frustration of getting nowhere, and eventually a loss of life. Dare Kidner, another scholar, summarizing the sluggard in Proverbs, says, He will not begin things. He will not finish things. He will not face things. Consequently, listen, he is restless. And I cannot help but imagine, as I look at my own life and and my own laziness, that some of the greatest moments of restlessness that I've experienced, of of restlessness, of, of unsatisfied desire, was the result of me playing the role of the sluggard. He doesn't finish things. He doesn't face things. He doesn't even begin things. Consequently, he is restless. And I wonder how much of our generation's notorious restlessness and notorious anxiety is caused by our inability to stick with something. Our tendency to cower at the obstacles we encounter at work instead of facing them head on. Our choosing to toss and turn in our bed like a door on its hinges instead of getting on our way. Unless you begin to think that this is just like Old Testament harshness and you want to go to the New Testament like, like a mom with, with like an enabling mom with a plate of cookies, right? Listen to how Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians. He says this, For even when we are with you, we could give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, if you're not able to work, that's a different thing. For some reason, mentally, some reason, physically, you're not able to work. Don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not here to make you feel bad about that. That's an entirely different thing. See, as tempting as it is to frame Paul and the authors of Proverbs as a disapproving father shaming their child into working harder, into getting a job, that's simply not the full answer. We, we can't end there today. We, we can't end today with just work harder. That's part, partly the answer. Some of you need to hear, just work harder. But all of us need to hear this. We need to, as a people, learn to re-narrate our work. Learn to situate our work in the grander work that God is doing in this world and has been doing throughout history. To understand where our work fits in the big story of how God has worked, is working, and, and will work. So what does that look like? Well, God has worked in conquering sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, he has made you a minister of reconciliation, bringing this good news to all as you seek out ways in your work to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God. It means he is working in you now. 
He is. He is working in your weakness. He is working even in your inability to get out of bed. He desires to glorify himself. See, maybe it's not getting out of bed that's your problem, uh, but persevering where he has you. Sticking with it. Staying at that job. Confess this to the Lord. Watch him show up in your weakness. The presence of sin in this world, of death in this world, of thorns in this world should remind us that we should not, we should not, we should not expect easy breezy work in this lifetime. Further, Jesus tells us that as his followers, we should expect opposition. We should just expect that. It means that this good work that he's doing in you to change you, he will bring it to completion. He's going to do it. See, while we at times give up on our work and don't finish our work, he is faithful. Though we are faithless, he is faithful. The return of Jesus reminds us that there is coming a day when he will complete his work. It is a day when you and I will have to give an account for the work we did here on earth. We have a brief time, a very brief time. And considering that the beginning starts with diapers and probably ends with diapers, we have even a briefer time. We have a short moment here in this life. How will we work? How will we work, especially in, the work, in view of the work of Jesus? See, work at its worst. And we see that ugly picture of the sluggard. And, and if we're honest, we see ourselves in part, at least, in the person of the sluggard. Work at its worst. The, the, the sluggard himself finds their redemption in Jesus alone. The good news this afternoon is that in Jesus, we are able to be the wise workers of Proverbs. In Jesus, we are able to have meaning and purpose and dignity and hope in the work that we do. We just need to re-narrate it. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've come to give meaning and purpose to every part of our lives. Not just our Sundays, not just our community groups, but you've come to give meaning and purpose to every part of our lives. Lord, I think of all the people here right now today and all the complex work situations that they're in and all the things they're thinking right now. Lord, I ask, Father, that you would help all of us re-narrate our work, that we would see clearly how our work loves you and loves our neighbors. Lord, for those of us perhaps unable to make that, that, that connection, Father, would you help us? Would you help us with brothers and sisters to help us with that? Would you, by your Spirit, help us with that? Lord, if there's some of us who need to quit, to leave our jobs, Father, would you give us courage to do that as well too? Lord, if there's some of us who need to persevere, and you're calling us to persevere, Lord, would you give us courage to do that as well? Lord, if there's some of us who you're calling to stand before kings, to, to reform, uh, to change things from the top, Lord, I ask, Father, that in those moments, we would know whose agenda we want to advance. Uh, we want to advance yours and not our own. Father, we need your help in all of this. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Be with us now as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.